Take your copy of God's Word and open it with me once again to the Gospel of John as we go back to our study of this great book, John chapter 11, and we'll begin in a moment in verse 45. While you're turning there, let me just share with you that uh, the reason why I am going with two other pastors tomorrow to Senegal is because our church, First Baptist Church of Homestead, is one of 300 Baptist churches in the Miami Baptist Association in all of Miami-Dade County. This is actually the oldest remaining of those 300 churches, in case you did not know, not just in Homestead, but in all of Miami. Most of these churches are considerably smaller than First Baptist Homestead, but we believe that all of us working together can do things that no one individual church can do by itself. And one of those things is to adopt a tribe or a people group that is unreached with the gospel, where there are no churches, perhaps there are no believers at all, no missionaries. And so basically, we are going on what is actually a vision trip. It's not a mission trip. Uh, although we're always on mission for God. But this is a vision trip and that we're going to be traveling throughout the country and going to different villages and talking to people, meeting different tribes and finding out how much exposure to the gospel there is, looking for a place where all 300 churches can work together to saturate that place with the gospel. We uh, had a member of our church until somewhat recently uh, a young woman named Choro, who was born in Senegal, and she is part of the Wolof people group. That was her first language, uh, a group where we're going to be working. When she found out where we were going to be traveling, she assured me that in three of those places, uh, I will not likely meet any Christians whatsoever. She said, even though there is great opposition to the gospel, she said, nevertheless, simply by going and by uh, spending time with them, not as tourists, but getting to know them, asking them questions, meeting their needs, praying for them, uh, doing things like giving gifts that show honor. By doing these things, she said, you absolutely will make a tremendous impact and will plant seeds. Uh, you will be very well received. And so we're looking forward to that. One of the things I would like you to pray for this week, pray that God would guide us as we pray. Our plan, uh, part of the plan, is to go to different tribes and perhaps meet the leaders and talk to the people and ask if we can pray for them. When they pray, they recite Arabic prayers that they have memorized, but they don't understand because none of them speak Arabic. So they're just reciting syllables. Uh, what we will do is we will ask, well, what are the needs here and how can we pray for you? And we would like to show you how we pray to God personally in Jesus' name. And since we believe that God answers prayer, one of the things we believe will happen as God answers prayer, they would be able to connect the dots and say, well, how about that? Those people from the United States came and they prayed for us in the name of this person, Jesus. And when they did, look at what happened. So pray that God would guide us to pray for the right things. 
uh, that we would be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. Pray that God would answer those prayers affirmatively so that they can connect the dots and know that Jesus is real. Now, I do want to say I thank you for all of your prayers. I know you would be praying for me this week. I do want you to know that according to the U.S. State Department, Senegal has the same security level as Canada. It's level one, which is considered one of the safest places in the world that you can visit. I'm just letting you know, this is not like Somalia or North Korea or something like that, okay? Uh, But do be praying for us, and I look forward to next week. You know, Mission Sunday is one of my favorite weeks of the year, and so for me to not be here in person is a big burden for me, but thanks to technology, yes, I will be speaking to you live from the screen next Sunday morning, so don't uh, think that, well, pastor's not here, so we're just going to stay home and, and, and rest at home. Oh, no, I'll be watching, all right? So uh, even though I'll be in Africa, I will be speaking to you live in person next Sunday, and I expect to see all of you here. Now, with that being said, in the Gospel of John, chapter 11, in a moment, we'll begin in verse 45. Before we get to our text, let me just say, I am not a fan of conspiracy theories. A conspiracy theory, for those of you who do not know, is the belief that a group of people are working secretly to do something bad or to cover something up. Now, if you are into conspiracy theories, listen, I'm not here judging you, okay? I just say how surprised I am at how many conspiracy theories there are and how many people believe in them. For example, here are some actual conspiracy theories that have actual adherence. The earth is flat. The moon landing was fake. Aliens live in Area 51. King Charles is a vampire. Now, I'm open to that one. Bigfoot is real. Mermaids are real. The Matrix is real. The Loch Ness Monster lives in Scotland. All of these are actual conspiracies that many people believe. And if that's you, that's okay. I saw someone with a t-shirt that said, Bigfoot doesn't believe in you either. (laughs) Trust me when I say that there are many, many more conspiracy theories. Now, I believe that as Christians, as people who believe in absolute truth, we should naturally be skeptical of conspiracy theories. That being said, every now and then, the conspiracy is real. And this morning, I want to talk to you about a conspiracy that was true 2,000 years ago, the enemies of Jesus came together and they agreed that Jesus must die. They, from that day forward, they conspired to seize Jesus and execute Jesus. But it turns out this was a divine conspiracy because little did they know God was in on it. Now, prior to Thanksgiving, we took three weeks and we 
studied the story about the resurrection of Lazarus, starting in verse 45, is what immediately follows. Now, if you're reading this for the first time, you just know that John is going to then tell us about Mary and Martha's joy about receiving Lazarus, their brother, back again. Or maybe John is going to proceed to talk about what it was like for Lazarus to have died and then been raised from the dead. But no, John skips all of that. He goes straight from the resurrection of Lazarus to the plot to kill Jesus. And we see that this is what it was always about. It was never about Lazarus. It was always about Jesus. Now, this passage we're going to read today, it is so oftentimes overlooked because it is nestled in between two of the most beloved stories in all of the Bible. But it would be a very big mistake to skip over these verses because what we see in this passage is a beautiful picture of the sovereignty of God. The fact that God is sovereign. God is in control over every detail of our lives, everything that comes into our lives. And in these verses, we see man strategizing, but we see God orchestrating. We see man doing his worst and God, as always, doing his best. And as we look at this passage, there are three ways in particular I want you to see where the sovereignty of God is put on display. We see, first of all, that God is sovereign over the motives of those who reject him. God is sovereign even over the motives of those who reject him. Look at verse 45. Then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things Jesus did. Now, notice two reactions to this miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead. Verse 45 says, many believed in him. Now, that word many, it kind of baffles us. They just saw a dead man rise from the grave. It should say, everybody who saw that believed in him. But even in spite of this great miracle, there were many who did not believe. And in verse 46, there were those who were tattletales who ran to the Pharisees to tell them what Jesus did, presumably so that they would do something about it. Now, this is just another reminder of the wickedness and the depravity that is natural to man, that is part of the human heart. And by the way, Whenever you hear someone say, well, I would believe in God, I would believe in Jesus, I would believe in the gospel, if only I had evidence, don't you believe them? Because there is enough evidence for anyone to believe who is willing to believe, and if a person has decided that they just don't want to believe, they will find a way 
to discount even the strongest evidence. Look at verse 47. Then the chief priest and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, What shall we do? For this man works many signs. When the priests and Pharisees heard that Jesus had raised a man from the dead, the Bible says they gathered a council. Now, that Greek word for council is sunadrion, or as it normally is translated, Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin, if you don't know, was a special council that was made up of Jewish leaders. In fact, two groups of Jews. You had the Pharisees and you had the Sadducees. These two groups really couldn't stand each other. They had very little in common. The Pharisees were super conservative and legalistic. The Sadducees were super liberal. But as much as they hated each other, it turns out they hated Jesus more. And so they came together and noticed the question they asked, what are we going to do for this man works many signs? Notice, they don't even deny that the signs were real. Lazarus was clearly dead, and now he's clearly alive. They knew the signs were real, but they rejected him anyway. Now, if you are wondering how could someone still reject Jesus, even if they saw a miracle such as the raising of a man from the dead, how could someone see that and reject him anyway? Well, the answer to that question is found in verse 48. If we let him alone like this, Everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and nation. They believed that because of the resurrection of Lazarus, everyone was going to start believing in Jesus. But if too many people started believing in Jesus, they might start looking at him like a political savior. And they might rebel against Rome. And if they rebelled against Rome, then that means the Romans would come in and destroy the nation. But in their minds, you see, that wasn't even the worst part. The Romans allowed the people they conquered to have a little bit of self-government. They allowed them to have a little bit of power. The Romans allowed the Jews uh, to have their religious laws and their religious traditions and their council, their Sanhedrin. But if Rome came in and destroyed Israel, there would be no more Sanhedrin. Do you understand what that means? No more perks for them. No more personal benefits. And so they said, hey, the Romans are going to take away our place. What place? Their place at the table. Their place of power, their privileges, their fame. Now listen to me carefully. They rejected Jesus because they cared more about political power than they did being right with God. They cared more about Caesar's approval than they did God's approval. I might offend some people with what I'm going to say, but I think it needs to be said. 
I fear a lot of Christians today might be making that very same mistake because there are a lot of people who are willing to back anyone or anything, no matter what they believe, no matter what they represent, just to have a seat at the table, just so they can have a little bit of political power. Oh, be careful, church. What's ironic in John 11 is that that very thing that they were so worried about that might happen if they embrace Jesus as the Messiah, you know what? It happened anyway, even though they didn't. Less than four decades later, in AD 70, yes, the Romans came in and destroyed Jerusalem, and they destroyed the temple, and there was no Jewish state again until 1948. Now, this teaches us a very important lesson. Whatever thing you hold on to in place of Jesus, instead of Jesus, you will lose anyway. Whatever it is, you are not willing to give up for the cause of Christ. You will lose anyway. Whatever you choose over Jesus, it's never worth it. But whatever you give up for Jesus, it's always, always worth it. They rejected Jesus because their motive was to stay in power. And I want you to notice what God does. God takes even that motive, that sinful motive, and he uses it to place Jesus upon the cross. That's how sovereign God is. Man may freely reject Christ, but God will use even man's rejection of him in order to accomplish what he sets out to do. And so, in John 11, yes, some choose to believe him, and some choose to reject him, but no one can stop him because God is sovereign. And God is sovereign even over the motives of those who reject him. Now, we also see that God is sovereign over the ideas of those who oppose him. God is sovereign over the ideas of those who oppose him. Look at verse 49. And one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. We know from the book of Acts that this man, Caiaphas, was a Sadducee, not a Pharisee. And as a Sadducee, Caiaphas did not believe in miracles. As a Sadducee, he did not believe in the existence of angels. He did not believe in the resurrection. He did not believe in heaven. He did not believe in eternal life. He did not believe in the majority of the Old Testament scriptures. But this man, Caiaphas, who didn't believe in anything, notice what happens. I love this. 
He opens his mouth, and the gospel came out. Everybody was so worried that the entire nation would be killed because of Jesus. And Caiaphas raises his hand and says, wait, I know. I've got an idea. Let's kill Jesus in place of the Romans killing us. How about instead of everyone dying, one man dies for everyone? Now, John comments on this idea that Caiaphas had in verse 51. Now, this he did not say of his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. Notice two key words in verse 51. It says, he prophesied. Who prophesied? Caiaphas? Caiaphas the believer? No. Caiaphas the follower of Christ? No. Caiaphas who loved God? No. Caiaphas, this evil man who opposed Jesus, he prophesied. Now, by the way, be very careful about saying, well, God can only speak through someone who thinks just like I do on everything. You ever hear that? Be careful. God can speak through a donkey. And if God can speak through a donkey, God can speak through anyone including a scoundrel like Caiaphas. And understand, Caiaphas was not some kind of puppet. God was not putting words in his mouth against his will. When Caiaphas suggested that they kill Jesus, yes, he was operating according to his own free will. And yet, the very idea he proposed was the mechanism that God used to accomplish his will. There is, in all of this, a human side to what is happening, but there is also, in all of this, a divine side to what is happening. The human side is that this was a brutal murder, but on the divine side, what is happening here is a loving sacrifice as God gives his only begotten son for us. A lot of people think that there is a conflict between the free will of man and the sovereignty of God as if somehow we got to figure out how to reconcile the two. Ladies and gentlemen, we don't have to reconcile friends. There's no conflict here. God is so sovereign and God is so powerful, he can take the evil plans of free men and use them as his tool to accomplish his purposes. That great preacher and that great author, A.W. Tozer, years ago, he once described all of this like a ship. He said, imagine a great big ocean liner departing from New York and heading to Liverpool. And there are hundreds of people on that ship. And he said, all of those people, every day, they're making free will decisions. 
They are deciding on their own freely what time they're going to get up, what time they're going to go to sleep, what they're going to eat at each meal, uh, what activities they're going to participate in on that ship. And meanwhile, while all of these people make all of these free decisions, the ship moves forward on a predetermined course towards a predetermined destination. In the same way, this world is full of people who make free will decisions, sinful decisions. And yet, you know what's happening? History is moving forward on its predetermined course, according to its predetermined destination that God has already chosen. I know there's no perfect analogy, but just imagine for a moment if the world champion of chess were to sit down and play a game of chess with a little boy who had just learned the rules and who barely knew how to move the pieces about the board. Now, that little boy may make all sorts of choices freely, where to move his pawn, where to move his knight, and yet the game is never in doubt. That game is never in doubt because the difference in knowledge between the world champion of chess and that little boy is so great. Well, in a similar way, just as the difference in knowledge between that chess champion and that little boy is great, that is nothing compared to the difference between God's knowledge and our knowledge, God's wisdom and our wisdom. And so history, it turns out, is never in doubt. And God always prevails. In this case, it was always God's plan that one man would die in place of everyone else. Revelation 13 says that he is the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. 700 years before John 11, God spoke through the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 53, 5, and said, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was placed on him. By his stripes, we are healed. Notice one man was wounded and bruised and chastised. One man received stripes. One man suffered and died. Why? Because of our transgressions, our iniquities, for our peace and for our healing. And because that one man who did all of this was Jesus, the sinless Son of God. You know what that means? That means his sacrifice for us when he laid down his life is more than sufficient to pay for the sin debt of every man, woman, boy, and girl, past, present, and future. Now, this doctrine that shows up in this story, we have a name for this. We call this the substitutionary or the vicarious atonement. The fact that Jesus was our substitute. You see, the wages of sin, the Bible says, is what? Death. And because we all have sinned, we all deserve to die. 
And it's not just physical death we face, but spiritual death, which is eternal separation from God in a place called hell. But listen to this. The sentence of death was upon us, and yet God loved us and sent his son to suffer that sentence for us. Romans 5.8 says, Christ died for us. He was our substitute. He took our place. And so it turns out that Caiaphas's great idea was actually God's idea. God was the one who put that meeting on the calendar. God was the one who called it to order. God's the one who is in charge all the time. This reminds me of a story that came out of Kenya a number of years ago from the Kajavi Medical Center. They reported a story about a little eight-year-old girl in Kenya named Monica who fell into some kind of a pit and she could not climb out. Along came an older woman who was affectionately known in that village as Mama Najeri. When Mama Najeri saw that little girl Monica in the pit, she, she did something interesting. She actually slid down into the pit herself so that she could lift up that little girl Monica and lift her out. What neither of them noticed was that there was a black mamba serpent in that pit. That serpent bit both of them, Mama Najeri first, and then that little girl Monica second. They reported that in the hours that followed, that little girl survived, but Mama Najeri did not. You see, when the serpent bit Mama Najeri first, all of its venom went into her. And when that serpent bit that little girl, it didn't have any venom left. You realize in a similar way, Jesus took death's bite, receiving all of its venom and himself when he died on the cross for you and for me and for those who believe in him, guess what? Death's bite does not have any more venom for us. This was always God's idea. God took that idea and he planted it in the heart and the mind of Caiaphas and God used him to bring all of this about, to bring about salvation not only to the Jews in verse 51, but to Gentiles as well in verse 52. The story reminds us of Joseph and what he said to his own brothers who had betrayed him back in Genesis chapter 50. Remember what he said? What you intended for evil, God intended for good. I believe what Joseph said to his brothers, Jesus could have said to Caiaphas, you intend it for evil, but God intends it for good. The same sovereignty of God that we see in Genesis 50 and John 11, that sovereignty works on our behalf today. Christian brother, Christian sister, I don't know what you're going through, but I want you to know that God is so sovereign, he can take the stones that the devil throws at you 
and use them to build a fortress all around you. God is so sovereign. He's sovereign over the motives of those who reject him. He is sovereign even over the ideas of those who oppose him. But one more thing I want you to see. God is sovereign over the plans of those who resist him. Look at verse 53. Then from that day on, they plotted to put him to death. Therefore, Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there into the country near the wilderness to a city called Ephraim, and there remained with his disciples. Verse 53 says, from that day on, meaning from that time that he rose Lazarus from the dead, from that time that the Sanhedrin had their meeting, from that day forward, it was as if when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, uh, it was a drawing of li- a-, a line in the sand, a miracle that was so clear, a miracle that was so undeniable that to reject it, it placed one on the other side of that line opposed to Jesus. From that day forward, it said, killing Jesus was their mission. And John says, therefore, Jesus went into the country. Understand, from this point forward and the rest of John's gospel, the public ministry of Jesus is over. And from here on out, Jesus is going to spend his time ministering privately to his disciples in this obscure place called Ephraim. For the rest of his ministry, he's going to privately pour out his heart and his life and his love into these disciples, these men and women who believed in him. And I want you to notice what John does here at the end of this passage. John fast forwards just a little bit. He is going to skip ahead a few months in the narrative, and he's going to make a point. He has a reason for doing this. Look at verse 55. And the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went from the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Then they sought Jesus and spoke among themselves as they stood in the temple, what do you think? that he will not come to the feast. Now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a command that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it that they might seize him. Now John briefly and intentionally skips ahead to the Passover. It's getting close. People are getting ready. They're making their way to Jerusalem And as they arrive, there's one topic of conversation. There's one thing everybody's talking about. Will Jesus show up? You know why they're asking that question? It's like they're saying, do you think he's got the guts? Do you think he's got the courage to show his face here and now? Because the Sanhedrin, after they met, they announced to all of the people, if anybody knows his whereabouts, you had better report it. Now, John skips ahead to the Passover because he wants us to understand there's a reason why God did not immediately hand Jesus over to be crucified when his public ministry ended and when the Sanhedrin decided that this is what they were going to do. 
Because it turns out the same God who is sovereign over all of these events, you know what? He's also sovereign over the timing of those events. He is sovereign over when these events take place. And it turns out Jesus had to be crucified not at any time, but at a specific time. He must die at the Passover. More than 1,400 years earlier, when the Israelites were slaves in Egypt, when God was getting ready to deliver them, remember what he did. He commanded that every family sacrifice a lamb that they paint the lintel and the doorpost of their home with the blood of that lamb. And then that night, God brought one more, one final plague upon Egypt. That night, in every home that was not covered by the blood of the lamb, the firstborn son in that family died. But every home that was covered by the blood of the lamb, God's judgment passed over them, which is why in English we call it the Passover. But God then instructed Israel to celebrate the Passover feast every year thereafter. Why? As a reminder that they were redeemed by the shedding of the blood of of a lamb. And this was, of course, a picture of another lamb whose blood would one day be shed, Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. And so in John, the end of chapter 11, he returns to the Passover. He wants us to see that Jesus will return at the Passover Only this time when Jesus comes back, he's not going to sneak into Jerusalem all incognito like he did back in chapter 7. This time, he comes riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. And this time, he comes to great crowds of joyful worshipers who are singing and shouting, Hosanna, glory to God in the highest. And Jesus boldly answers that question they were asking back in verse 56. Yes, he comes and he accepts God's assignment to lay down his life for you and for me. You see, those who resisted Jesus They had a plan, but it turns out only the plans of God are sovereign. And that's why God invites you and me to trust him, to follow him. Listen, God is going to accomplish his will with or without us. Jesus will build his church and God will grow his kingdom with or without us. But we do get to choose how we're going to respond and on what side we will be. We've talked this morning about uh, some of the ways the sovereignty of God shows up. And I want to just leave you with something Charles Haddon Spurgeon said about God's sovereignty and how we should respond to it. He said this, God is too wise to err, too good 
to be unkind. Therefore, leave off doubting him and begin to trust him. For in so doing, you will put a crown upon his head. If God is as sovereign as his word says this morning, that is exactly how we should respond by trusting him with all of our being, with all of our lives. And I hope that's your response this morning. Would you join me as we pray? God, we thank you again that you are sovereign and that you are so sovereign. You are even sovereign over all of man's evil motives and evil ideas and evil plans. And you are able to take all of that and just turn it around to do what you want to do for our good and for your glory. Thank you for being that kind of God. Thank you for being a great, great God. And we understand, God, that our response to this, if you are so sovereign, should be to trust you with our lives and to follow you completely when it's convenient for us, but also when it's not. During those times when it costs us very little, but during those times when it costs us everything, we want to follow you. God, if there are any here today who have never taken that step of following Jesus, how I pray that this would be the day they take that very first step of faith, confessing him as Lord of their lives. Oh, God, we pray that you would knock on the doors of hearts if there are any here today who need to accept this free gift of salvation. We realize we can't earn it. We can't work for it. We can't do anything to deserve it not by baptism, not by sacraments, not by church membership or anything like that. But God, we pray that just by receiving that free gift, by grace through faith alone, that for some here today, this would be that moment, that day of salvation, that day they become a follower of Jesus. Because as we've seen, it's always worth it. We thank you, Lord. We love you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let me remind you again, anything you hold on to in place of Jesus, you're going to lose anyway. Whatever that thing is, you're not willing to let go of. Well, I would accept Christ. I would become a Christian, but I've got this thing over here I'm holding on to. Nope. You're going to lose it anyway. And so it's not worth it. Jesus said, follow me. That's the great invitation of the Bible. Follow me. Maybe for some of you, that means taking that step today and saying, okay, I will follow Christ. I'm going to just lay aside everything else and say, okay, Jesus, as of today, I'm following you. Uh, you are Lord of my life. Wherever you lead, I'll go. Maybe that's the step you need to take right now. If so, don't wait, don't delay. I'm going to be right here at the front at the end of the service. You come to me and say, Pastor, that's me. I want to follow Christ, and we'll pray together. If you have questions and you want to just continue the conversation, we can make an appointment, if not with me, because I'm gone this week with Pastor Joe uh, but we'd love to share with you more just what it means to be a follower of Christ. Uh, you can also reach out to us if you're watching online. If you text us at that number, uh, click on the link when we send it to you at the end of the service and uh, let us know that step of faith that you're taking today. 
or if you'd like to have more information about our church or membership or baptism or, uh, or, or what it means to be a Christian, let us know. Reach out to us uh, because we want to hear from you as well.